Hello, hi, welcome to Dyslexia Explored. This is the second part of our conversation with Moira, who is has had five decades of experience with dyslexia here in Scotland, has been even got an award from the Queen for her services rendered and has made huge contributions in all sorts of different ways from a personal level to individual students in school to uh, a regional school level and also to a national level in Scotland and the UK in a contribution to dyslexia understanding and uh, provision. So Moira, great to have you for the second part. You're welcome. So Moira, uh, in the last episode, we talked about your, your story, your, your son, your, your brother uh, waking you up to dyslexia at a very young age as a child, you noticed it. Very keen observation in your teens of others in school, all the way to the point where you became a teacher and then a special education teacher in one form or another for the last 50 years. And you've talked us through those decades, all the way from 70s, 80s, etc., to, to the time with the Queen there. And I promised the listeners that you would maybe share some of your stories of students during that time and and maybe some, you've got so many different stories. Should we talk, address this question of, is it is it worth all of this, Americans call it accommodations, what do you call it? Adjustments to arrangements. Okay, is it worth the adjustments to these arrangements for these teenagers, children, teenagers, so that they can go into further education, etc. Where have you seen it work? Where have you seen it not work? What's your take on it all? Very, very few cases of it not working. Uh, if dyslexia or specific difficulties in the realms of literacy, which are preventing a young person from accessing the curriculum or expressing their knowledge and understanding of a subject, if that's identified prior to exams and sufficiently early prior to exams, then it's fairly straightforward to work out over a period of time involving subject teachers, the young person and the the support for learning specialists, uh, some kind of arrangement that will enable access to the curriculum, to the the language of the curriculum, the written curriculum, and enable the demonstration of ability in all sorts of subjects and ways to quite a high level. Now, I start off quite often with young, young people or with teachers, subject teachers who are perhaps a bit suspicious, who say giving them extra time over somebody else is a form of cheating. Uh, And so you keep having to prove that actually, no, not giving a dyslexic child extra time is a form of discrimination. Uh, There are two sides to each coin uh, as far as that's concerned. Uh, And so I, I liken it to, I wear glasses, And so in order to read a lengthy document, I have to wear my glasses. And a lot of teachers and adults wear glasses uh, and need them for uh, for lengthy close reading. Uh, And so if I was to give you a closely typed document, then take away your glasses and say, right, here you are, read that. 
I'll give you five minutes to read it, and then I'll ask you questions about it. Uh, and they reach for their glasses. They say, oh, no, 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 you're not allowed these. That's cheating, which more or less explains the whole premise in that if you are accustomed to wearing glasses to help you read, that then someone who is accustomed to having somebody read aloud to them is you're both disadvantaged in the same way if you take away your usual arrangement. Uh, and this kind of led up to looking at a usual way of working, which takes observation and knowledge of the individuals in the way they usually work in order to be comfortable and learn and access the curriculum. And if they read by highlighting keywords throughout and then going back over the keywords, then that's something that you don't take away from them. But it does mean that they would need enough time in an exam, which is almost always time limited, to read by highlighting the keywords and then going back over the keywords. That's their usual way of working. If you take it away, you're placing them at a disadvantage. Uh, and so it's all part of uh, discrimination and making sure that you're not taking away the usual way of working. Now, Moira, you've used this phrase, usual way of working with me mm -hmm. before when we've been at uh, local branch meetings, and I was quite taken by it. And you, you mentioned that it's actually a legal term oh, or yes. it's established. Could you give it's... us uh, s some background to this phrase that you're using? SQA and the JCQ in, in England, they both use the same terminology, although they're two separate examination boards. Uh, and you find that higher at university level, they will also use something similar. In that because in these enlightened days of the, uh, the, the 2020s, we are aware of individual differences in individual people, such as I wear glasses, you don't wear glasses, I would be disadvantaged if I had to read without my glasses, whereas it doesn't matter to you. People are yeah. differently abled, if you like, rather than disabled or enabled, they're differently abled. And uh, somebody with dyslexia is differently abled because their way of dealing with written material or print material is individual to them. And whether it's by highlighting by scanning, by using keywords, by listening uh, to it being read aloud. However it is, that's their usual way of working. And you don't immediately take Sometimes. it away because in an examination, the assumed way of working is that people will read by eye silently a piece of text and they will then follow the instructions in the piece of text perform whatever activity is required within the piece of text uh, by writing down and you know, recording in writing some way or other uh, their responses, which will then go off and be marked by a complete stranger and come back and bear an award or not, as the case might be. But the people setting the exams are making assumptions about the people sitting them. Uh, uh, and... Uh, yeah. They're assuming that everyone is the same, which, of course, everyone isn't the same, which is why the disability legislation makes it against the law to discriminate against individuals with particular needs 
in examinations as well as everything else in life. Fantastic. So you must put arrangements in place or you must put uh, the adjustments are to the arrangements for the exams, not the exam paper. Everybody sits the same exam paper. Yes. The marking criteria for the exam papers are exactly the same for everyone. What differs or varies are the arrangements in which they sit the exam, which might be you need extra time because you're a very slow reader or you need to use a computer keyboard because your handwriting is very slow, your spelling is rotten and your writing is illegible. And put, put, typing it into a, a paper allows you to have the spell checker enabled and to have what you're actually writing read by the marker. And so really using a computer is as much of a, an arrangement or adjustment for the person marking the paper as it is for yes. the person writing the paper. Because so, if they can read clearly what's been written, it's easier to mark. Yes. Uh, and so these things all have to be taken into account. What, and the, tell us a bit about, uh, you're an assessor, okay? And the, you yeah. just mentioned a little bit about the dynamics of assessment in school. Can you share a little bit about what that's like in Scotland just now? A, a lot of people around the world assume that Scotland has it down pat and we're way ahead of everyone else in terms of dyslexia assessments and so on for kids. And what could you give us some sort of uh, from your perspective, where, where you think it's at with re regard to children in schools? Where we're way ahead of everyone else is in the legislation. Yeah. Uh, and the legislation is uh, and has been since it first came out in 2004, uh, sort of groundbreaking uh, across the whole range of disability, including dyslexia, which isn't necessarily a disability uh, because it's a difference. In order to support an individual, uh, the Scottish legislation and uh, the principles of, uh, of inclusive education is that each child is provided with the individual support that they need to access the curriculum and to achieve to the, uh, their potential. Uh, that's the, the overarching aim uh, of education. And in order to determine what support a child needs, you have to figure out why the child is not progressing or making you know, or, or achieving in the expected way. And in most cases, this can be easily quantified in that a child might have some kind of physical issue. For example, they're failing to learn to read uh, and you say, pop off and have your eyes tested. And you discover that they're failing to learn to read because they can't see the page. They need glasses. And so you resolve that one. In some cases, it's a coloured overlay helps because they have uh, <clears throat> some kind of visual issues. Uh, in other cases, it could be they're failing to learn to write because they have uh, a developmental coordination disorder and they can't easily make a sequence of movements uh, in order to, to write reasonably and legibly. There can be all sorts of reasons. And when dyslexia comes in, it's almost always the one that's not identified, partly because non-specialist teachers don't always know enough about dyslexia 
to be able to identify it. Uh, most people assume it's a problem learning to read, write, and spell, which, in a nutshell, can be at the root of it. But we now know it's some difference in the way the brain works, and it's more closely related to processing. But non-specialist teachers won't know that. So they see a child who does a year in primary school and has got nowhere with reading and can barely appear to hold a pencil. And as they progress through primary school, they don't seem to make very much progress. And so they put extra support in for reading and they take them back and they go over the phonics again and they go over the the sequence of movements again uh, and review and put in extra support and extra help, which is fine because they think they're meeting individual needs. But in order to really help a child with dyslexia, you have to get below that and find out exactly what in their processing is causing them not to be able to read. And it could be visual. could be that they're visually struggling to process the words on a page. But actually, most of them, when they're younger at the primary school stages, are struggling to match the sound to the written symbol. And if they're not always seeing the written symbol clearly, then they don't always know which sound it is. Because although there may be 26 letters in the alphabet, there are something like 43 phonemes of the different sounds. And as you know, the English language is one of the most difficult around. And for any single sound, like ow, you could have a choice of five different phonemes. Because ow could be O-W, it could be O-U, it could be O-U-G-H, need I go on? Uh, the, The actual sound, and knowing which sound to match to which phoneme is a matter of familiarity with the word and the language. And if you're reading, you begin to learn that bow and bow and though all sound the same, but they they may look different. And young children don't have that because they're not able to match the phonemes and the sounds differently. And until you actually figure out that that's what the problem is, you can't resolve it. If you know that they're having problems with these, then you can pull these out and teach them separately and then reintegrate them back in to the whole reading and the recognising of words. Other children will seem to manage the sounds all right because they know what sounds to make when you see them, but they don't have what we call a good sight vocabulary. So they can do the sounds, they can do the phonics, but they can't actually recognise whole words to read them one at a time. They might recognise very common words like the, uh, but they won't recognise necessarily words like box, because it could be anything. How many children do you think have dyslexia? What percentage of children with dyslexia, say under 17 in schools, do you think have been identified? Oh, less and what percentage, i.e., aren't identified? In primary schools, only a very small percentage are identified as dyslexic. Most of them are identified 
as having some kind of additional support needs, but not necessarily as dyslexic because, as you very well know, every child with dyslexia reacts differently. And it could be for a series of reasons. And at that stage, in the early stages of primary, uh, for most children, what is important is that the teacher recognises the the issue, studies it to figure out what it is that's causing the problem and helps resolve it and puts the appropriate support in place and encourages the child. But... So what would you say as a percentage? Um... Guestimate. I would say probably about half in primary schools at that level are identified, but not necessarily as dyslexic. But the other half of okay, the children, so half are identified as needs. The other half of the children with dyslexia are identified as something else. They could be identified oh. as challenging behaviour. They could be identified still okay. as being lazy not interested, lacking concentration, unable to sit still, constantly on the move, perhaps having ADHD, unable to sit, to to form letters, perhaps having DCD. Uh, So they'll be identified as perhaps having something or having something that's completely inappropriate. Most commonly, in boys between ages of 9 and 12 in primary schools. It's very often behavioural or lack of concentration, not listening, not paying attention, not able to sit still. And although you say these look sound like physical things, they're actually the manifestation of the dyslexia. These themselves are not dyslexia. They are the way in which the dyslexia manifests in the classroom so we've got 50 percent of them so let's say let's just say for argument's sake 10 percent of the class the the school is dyslexic 50 percent of that those uh 10 percent are being identified as needing some special education needs the other are being identified as having an issue of behavior and 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 so on. How many do you think are actually being identified at that stage with dyslexia accurately? Um, accurately, perhaps a very small number. Uh, but teachers are not encouraged to identify specific issues that because they're afraid of slapping a label on someone. Uh, and I have an issue with people having an issue with labels in that the word you know. Identifying dyslexia is not slapping a label on someone. It's providing information about a range of issues that this child might suffer. And it's more of a signpost that indicates the direction that you should be heading in in terms of support. Uh, And it's quite difficult to have people move away from this concept of a label because they say, you know, it's a bit like what they used to call the medical model. In the, if you label somebody as dyslexic, then you are prescribing what should happen next in terms of treatment, which of course doesn't work because support for someone with dyslexia has to be individualized to the needs of that one person. And the same support won't work for the next one. 
uh, and the medical model requires that the same support acts for everyone, which is why we... Yeah. I see. You yeah. give this and that's pill where the labelling came result. from, and that's what was rejected. But what was rejected was the idea that by giving something a name, it determined the way forward. When what we want people to think of now is as a signpost, in that if you identify dyslexia, you are signposting the teacher in the direction they need to go to investigate further for that individual, being fully aware that not all of the issues identified as being a problem in dyslexia will exist in that one person because their issues are individual, partly yes. individual to them because of their educational background, which is different for everyone. They may have gone to the same school, but the way they experience what's happened in the same school is very different because there are individuals on the receiving end and there are all sorts of issues in terms of energy levels, self-esteem, confidence, family support and so on, which can make a huge difference to the way that a child will react to education. So dyslexia and behaviour, you know, you talked about dyslexia and behaviour there, and a number of people will have the question in their mind uh, that, you know, as a parent, that they will be seeing different kinds of behaviour come out that can be misunderstood if it's not clearly identified by a professional like you. Sometimes ADHD and dyslexia are, you know, some children with, I mean, I interviewed someone in the podcast. She was identified as dyslexia here in the UK by an educational psychologist, then went over to the USA to get her psychology degree and master's and had to be reassessed. And the assessor assessed her as ADHD and said the ADHD was a, a better way to go, as it were, within the American system. Nope. And I'm just wondering what the whole ADHD and dyslexia sort of thing is in call, your experience. used to be called comorbidity. We now call it overlapping issues. And there are aspects of ADHD and ADHD uh, which can overlap with dyslexia because there are concentration issues. There are processing issues. But in ADHD, unless it's been actually medically identified by an MRI scan as a chemical imbalance in the brain, it's not ADD or ADHD. Uh, and dyslexia can't be identified as a chemical imbalance. It can be identified as a difference. But of course, we don't do brain scans of children. An adult going to university can go through the brain scan uh, route if, if they want to or if it's available, uh, but you don't do it with children. But what you have, there are aspects of ADHD which are not typical of dyslexia. And there are aspects of dyslexia which children of ADHD might not have. But it's a matter of looking at the individual. And very often, a child appears to lack concentration, doesn't like sitting still, and likes to move around while learning. They'll be the hyperactive, uh, they're difficult. But actually, it's a, a, a kinesthetic learner with dyslexia 
who needs to be on the move in order to aid concentration, which could be similar to ADHD, but the ADHD child isn't on the move to aid concentration. The ADHD child is on the move because they have to move, and it's not nothing to do with learning, uh, whereas the dyslexic child needs to move around because that's how they listen. Do you think some people are identified with ADHD then, misidentified with ADHD and medicated when actually they've got dyslexia uh, and they need to move so to... Not so much in this country, possibly elsewhere. In this country, you have to have a triad of assessment. You need to have the uh, the parent's input because there's there are aspects of ADHD which will only show up at home in sleep patterns and so on the teacher assessment and the psychologist assessment. Uh, and that includes observation of the, the okay. child in three different situations by the psychologist. Observation at home as well as the parent filling in the form. Observation in school, in different, you know, different activities in school, uh, as well as the teacher filling in the form. And uh, observation in a controlled environment, uh, you know, by the psychologist in the clinical setting. Uh, And even then, uh, medication might not be prescribed. Uh, We're not happy with prescribing medication willy-nilly, particularly uh, of a a controlled drug uh, for children. Although, of course, there are children who have been through that complex process who have their medication prescribed. I've got you. Wow. And so during that process, they might decide, realize, actually, we thought it might be ADHD, but actually we've realized it's dyslexia. It's not that. It's uh, something something other than that. This restless child who has to move around and squirm about and repeat everything aloud, uh, particularly the repeating everything, because one of the ways younger children with dyslexia will help listen and understand what the teacher is saying is by repeating it because they tell themselves that if they read aloud they can understand what they're reading better than if they have to read silently uh and this is all yes. at the younger end as opposed to the older end at the as they get older that tends to be for boys it's just not interested he's lazy he's not putting in any work and he, he will get bad tempered and short tempered he's refusing to write is refusing to do this, is refusing to do that, you know, all sorts of things. I mean, I had uh, one 11-year-old that I worked with before the lockdown in January who, a very able boy, because one of the things we have to look at when we're doing an assessment is underlying uh, cognitive abilities. Uh, And his underlying cognitive abilities were high, Uh, in fact, very high in some cases. And he could read, not totally accurately and not particularly quickly, but he could read. He had a very wide general knowledge. He could spell up to a point because he had worked very hard on acquiring a sight vocabulary. But he just couldn't write. If he had to write a story, he'd write two lines and that would be it. Uh, and uh, the teacher was, he's, you know, he doesn't have a learning difficulty said the teacher, because he's very able, correctly identifying his ability and knowing that his his reading was adequate. But, you know, he just wouldn't write anything down. I worked with him, assessed him, uh, and made certain recommendations. 
including learning touch typing, doing everything on a laptop, throwing away the pencil and paper, doing everything electronically. And I had a lovely email in the middle of lockdown from his his mother uh, saying that uh, he's just on his computer written her a two-page story, which is the most he's ever written in his life. And he said he actually quite enjoyed doing that because nobody was forcing him with a pencil to think about spelling and choice of words. He just wrote his story on the computer and let the computer do the autocorrection and the spelling. Nobody had actually thought of that before. Fantastic. Uh, this is it. And uh, it took the assessment my, of dyslexia Myra. to get him to what would sort out the problem. Fantastic. Yes. This podcast is sponsored by dyslexiaproductivitycoaching.com, which helps you organize yourself creatively with a productivity system for Apple devices. I was going to ask you now, there's so much I want to ask you because I know you've got so much to give. And, and one of the things that I've really enjoyed about your talks in Dyslexia Scotland is you come up with some interesting words of insight and wisdom in identifying uh, traits of dyslexia. And one of my favorites that I got from you was a dyslexic child often has the biggest bag in the class. Could you share a little bit about that and a little bit about other kind of, you know, quirky things that you pick up as indicators that become like alerts to you? Uh, the big bag one is really uh, to do with uh, working memory. A working memory is linked to processing speed. <laughs> and dyslexics, particularly the busy, more able dyslexic, typically has a, a, a poorish working memory. Uh, and it's, you know, uh, so what they tend to do is carry all their books and all their gear all of the time. That means whenever they go into a classroom, they know they've got the right book, the right homework, uh, and the right equipment. So they're not going to get into any kind of trouble or have sanctions because they've left their geography book at home or the, uh, their English notebook is, is elsewhere and so on. They always have all of the gear. But in order to carry all of their books all of the time, they have to have a big bag. And typically, these bags don't have interesting filing compartments labelled with different subjects. Because, <laughs> the, mind you, that's an idea. Maybe you should patent it, Darius, for, for the dyslexic. A big yes. bag with, cat, uh, with <laughs> compartments. Uh, and so everything is all jumbled in together. And you have football boots and PE shorts yeah. and pencil cases and rulers and books and jotters and r all sorts of stuff all piled in together. And so if you go into a classroom and there is a child sitting usually towards the back of the classroom or other a, a child trails in late to a classroom, lugging a huge bag and then drags it to the back of the classroom, puts it on a desk and instantly disappears into this bag, which takes about the first 10 or 15 minutes of a lesson. The teacher, meanwhile, has been doing things on the blackboard or explaining what they're going to be doing next, and this child is invisible in the bag and comes out triumphantly with this dog-eared homework jotter in order to hand in the homework uh, and hasn't a clue what's going on in the classroom. And he's so proud that he's, got, he's remembered his notebook uh, he's completely missed the whole first part of the lesson. 
And this is not uncommon in dyslexia. And it could happen in any lesson, uh, wherever, because they're so determined not to forget anything that they bring everything. And of course, that causes absolute chaos. And then you have. The, Can you share with us another well, a, example? Uh, of... One, the boy whose pencil keeps breaking. Every lesson, after, well, teacher teaches a lesson. They have the, uh, typically okay. in high school, teacher will introduce the topic for the lesson. Uh, we'll go over it in summary, uh, and then we'll, uh, we'll introduce various aspects of what they're talking about, involve people in class with discussion. And very often the dyslexic children are the brightest in responding to oral questions. They may pause or repeat the question before answering it, but they're very good with the oral questions. And then there comes the point in every lesson where they have to do some written work because this is the pattern of a high school lesson. You have the teacher intro, you have the introduction of the information, you have the class discussion, and then you have the writing it all down. And so this really bright, articulate boy who very thoughtful and uh, every time the teacher starts winding up, getting ready to go on to the written bit, he hand goes up and there's another question, another little bit of discussion. And eventually the class is settled down to the writing so the teacher can then go and have chats with people that weren't engaging in the earlier part, perhaps difficulty understanding parts, uh, and uh, looks up and here's the bright boy at the waste paper basket sharpening his pencil and back to his seat. And then a few minutes later, he's out there sharpening his pencil again. And so when you go to look and see what he's written, there's maybe a word or two words written down and out there sharpening his pencil. Uh, and uh, I recall this one quite vividly as a, a very alert maths teacher decided that she was going to do something about this. So she got a whole pot of brand new sharp pencils and put them on his desk and said, if you break that pencil, don't worry about it. Just use one of these and we'll be able to get your maths done because it was maths that he was supposed to be doing. By the end of the lesson, she decided she wasn't going to do that again because every single one of her brand new pencils was broken in pieces and he still hadn't done very much work. Uh, and so alerted to this problem, uh, his English teacher decided, you're not going to use a pencil, you're going to use a pen which was a really bad idea because he then managed to explode the pen and the ink was everywhere, all over the desk, all over the book and all sorts. Uh, uh, and uh, at that point, I decided this really need, needed to stop. So off we went and did an assessment. And of course, he was very bright, very able, very dyslexic. Uh, and he could cope on the oral, oral area. He was very good verbally. He pretty well sorted out reading. He wasn't the world's best reader, but he could read stuff. You know, he could make sense of it. He understood what he was doing. But he just had no idea where to begin with writing. Uh, and what we did, of course, was take away all his pens and pencils and give him a laptop computer. I won't say problem solved totally, but it certainly resolved a lot of the issues. But we still had difficulties with maths because maths don't do very well on the computer. Moira. One of the questions I often ask here at this stage is mind mapping. What has been your experience of mind mapping and dyslexia over the decades? I mean, you, you've spanned the decades of when before even mind mapping 
was was a term and Buzan yeah, invented it. Yeah, well, we used to do spider so diagrams. What, what's your take on my Some mapping? dyslexic children will do very well with lists. But the problem with lists are, unless they're sequential, they don't build themselves into comprehensive pieces of written work. Uh, you need the sequential issue uh, for that. Uh, and so you, you, you do the, uh, you're just the circular thing. You, uh, as I do, a blob with you know, spikes coming off. Uh, and, but uh, what we did with the, the dyslexic children was instead of doing it all on a blank sheet of paper, was do it on individual pieces of card so that they, uh, they, they thought somebody would, uh-huh. you know, they, they'd start with their central theme. Uh, and everybody would come up with ideas. So everybody would come up with something to do with the theme and write it on a card. Uh, and then we, we could discuss it, move it around. And the beauty of the bits of cards were like the computers, uh, uh, you know, like the stuff you do. You can actually sort it into any sequence that you like. Uh, and for dyslexics, it's wonderful. Uh, and if you use the right computer software, the computer <laughs> can sort what you've put on your mind map into logical sequence and even put it into paragraphs uh, uh, and build from there. Uh, and it's almost like uh, if you combine it with a writing frame, you know, which is a blank, a skeleton style of report, whatever you're doing, uh, then you can take your, your mind map and the information you've got in your mind map, slot it into your writing frame, uh, and uh, ergo you've got a very sophisticated piece of writing. Uh, and these are wonderful, but not for all dyslexics. Some dyslexics still need the physical thing of handwriting and handwriting continuously, uh, which means there are going to be bits that are crossed out and arrows going in all sorts of directions. And it's much harder to read and to mark than it is using the computer. Tablets help because they can actually get more physical with the tablets. And, and it's quite difficult to transfer the satisfaction and the, the muscle memory, if you like, of the handwriting action to the muscle memory of two-handed typing. And so there are kind of issues there. Uh, but mind yes. mapping is one of my stalwarts in that you can start very simply uh, and take it from there. You can even, uh, though it's not necessarily the best thing for every child with dyslexia, use a little bit of mind mapping with the phoneme sounds in terms of making up words with the different phonemes. You can have the, the, the blends mm. for the beginnings of words and you can have all the phonemes and you can have little competitions as to who could make up the most words, but then you have to read your words aloud for them to be made up. Now, if you had the, the, the starting blend was BL and you had the, uh, the O or the O sounds, the O-U-G-H, the O-W, the O-U, and so on. Uh, and you can, yeah, how many words can you make up putting these together? Competitive, which is a sort of mind mapping step. It's not a, a the full mind map where you're, you're, you're actually bringing out all the information inside the head, but it's a technique that can build into mind mapping. So take it forward from there. I'm intrigued to hear... How, how, you know, since Buzan kind of started, I think, 75, 77, round about there, I think. Oh, yes, it's been around for a very long time. 
Um, how how did you see mind mapping being adopted into education with dyslexia over the years? Did was it immediate? Did it take a while to? Here, before I read uh, Bazan, I I was I'd always done spider diagrams because uh, that's the way I I think I'm not very art- okay. not very artistic, but I have a, quite a good eye. Uh, in terms of things. And if I'm doing a list, a vertical list, I will always miss things out. And I keep adding things in and they're all in the wrong place. So it's easier to scatter them around the uh, the circle and then move everything uh, once you finish doing that. Uh, and so I was always, that's just the way my brain worked anyway. Uh, and, and so that's the way I taught. Yeah. Which was easy for me. It might not so you were teaching it like that before you had yes. it from Bruce? Uh-huh. Well, I th- it was around you know, before he wrote about it. He just kind of put it all together uh, and made it more accessible and made it more practical yes. for use. Uh, and then yes. from from where he was, uh, there's the, the computer software, the, you know, the Kidspiration, the Inspiration stuff, which was great. And then there's all the stuff that you do, yeah. which is the refinements. Uh, until you have something as sophisticated uh, uh, as your stuff, which is very complicated, but so simple and so useful. Let's wind things up in terms of advice to teenage children and parents. Like, you know, if, if you were giving and you do give advice, you know, Let's say to a, a, a twelve-year-old or a ten to twelve-year-old child, what do you find the advice you would give to ten to twelve-year-olds at the moment? You know, or in in general, what what do you think's your top nuggets of advice? If you had, you know, a minute to catch a person, what what are the must? Well, it's very difficult because. Am I talking to someone who has been assessed as dyslexic or someone who has issues that may be dyslexic or someone who is that age and is worried about possibly not being able to cope with transition to high school? Uh, And my big thing is, if you're not sure about something, ask. And if you don't understand the explanation and you don't want to ask again in the classroom, ask your support teacher, which could be your guidance teacher or your parent. Own up to it. If somebody says you should be doing, you should be doing better than this. You're being lazy. You're not working hard enough, and you know that you're working really hard. That's when you need to ask to be assessed. In that, I am working as hard as I possibly can, right. but they're telling me I have to work harder. I can't work harder. Then yeah. I need an assessment. I mean, I've assessed. Each children, your boys age 11, 12, who have been on behaviour support cards because they, they are considered to be disengaged from the, the curriculum. And once assessed as dyslexic with various supports put in place, I had a phone call from a parent saying, I took a different boy home because once he was everything was explained to him, it all made sense. It all slotted in and behaviour card thrown away, Mr. Perfect. I mean, it's not quite as miraculous as that for all children, but I have found that once they, even as young as eight or nine, if you explain to them why they're having difficulties with what is a problem to them, 
it makes sense, and they can then take on board things that will help. If you just say you must try harder or you've got to do more of this, you have to do more of that or do it again, that's not going to get anywhere. They need to understand why they can't do something or they're struggling with something or they're, they're having difficulty remembering something. And once they understand why that's a problem, you, they can then start to move forward. And they mustn't assume that they're... I've met quite a lot of yeah. young people with dyslexia who lower their sights from their career aspirations because they get poor exam results. And until they got poor exam results, nobody had ever questioned dyslexia. But suddenly, this bright child who was expected to do well in national fives drops to C's instead of A's. And that is a clear indication. Uh, the first thing I would do yes. in that case would be assess. Because the probability is that you have a dyslexic child and you then well, have to assess, explain why everything went wrong, put in measures to resolve that, and then take it forward from there. And if you're listening to this, you, that we did a podcast episode, I think three or four episodes back, where we interviewed a 13-year-old who had been through this experience. And you can hear her experience of, you know, rejecting it and saying, no, I don't want to be dyslexic, and then realizing its explanation and going through exactly what you're talking about there and, and the relief of it. And then she's now doing really well in school. And uh, some people even saying of her, is she really dyslexic? Because she's getting 96% and so forth. But yes, she's bright, but she's also dyslexic. So that that's really helpful. So listen back to, to that. Moira, advice for parents. What What advice would you give parents? Don't assume that because your child is apparently rejecting homework and is maybe their grades are dropping in school, it's something to do with the child and their behaviour. Many teachers say behaviour's gone a bit off, is there something going on at home? It could well be the, the the whole puberty thing, which is often something that comes, it causes all sorts of young teenagers to go a bit haywire. This is not at the root of difficulties in learning. It's a, That's a, a kind of transitory thing that comes and goes depending on the various circumstances. If you have any concerns that your child is falling behind or failing to keep up with the grades that they had had, then talk to them. Find out what is at the root of the problem. And if it's because the boy keep behind keeps pinging on my, my bra, which boys do, and they, they see a bra coming through a white T-shirt, they ping it, then talk to the teacher and have the boy moved uh, so that it doesn't happen. But it could be that they just can't read fast enough to keep up, that they're falling behind because they're slow readers. And if they're slow readers, suddenly, doesn't mean that their reading has suddenly got worse. It just means that the, the volume of reading as they progress through high school gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And eventually the brain goes into overload and this is very common in able dyslexics because most able children with dyslexia learn to read fine. 
their writing might not be up to, uh, as good as their reading and not nearly as good as their oral work, but more or less is okay. Uh, they're sort of much better orally than they are once they're writing it down. It is a common indication of a bright child with possible uh, dyslexic issues. But overload will kick in because the, the high school curriculum is wide and huge. And the more they go into a, a subject area, the more knowledge they have to acquire. And their heads just may not be able to take the reading. So they slow down quite considerably. And that's what you need to talk to them. What exactly is the problem? Pinpoint the problem. And if it's something like that, then think about assessment. And if they're not dyslexic, if there are some other issues, then an assessment will pull, pull that up and perhaps point in the direction where the issues uh, could be resolved. It could be simple anxiety or self-esteem. Some children become very anxious in high school. Uh, and although they may not actually have mental health issues, anxiety can bring down the level of work. But anxiety is quite common with some children with dyslexia in that they are waiting for the, the roof to cave in and they're anxious at some point it's all, all going to go pear-shaped. Yes. And so sometimes it does. Ah, wow, that's an interesting way to describe the anxiety of dyslexia, the waiting for the roof to cave in. Wow. You, you can prevent it by working on self-esteem. Yeah, because a lot of, yeah. Moira, let's uh, close this podcast with some final thoughts from you. I mean, is, is there anything you would like to share in general that you haven't covered so far that you think oh, yeah, it would be uh, good for our listeners? Self-esteem is hugely important in all children and young people. Well, all adults. In that if self-esteem is low, then general performance tends also to be low. And so the first thing you have to start working on is self-esteem. And if a child, a young person, an adult uh, starts building up self-esteem, which is really just listing things that I'm good at, and it may be as simple as I am good at getting out of bed in the morning, big tick. I am good at picking up my, my laundry and putting it in the laundry basket. It doesn't have to be anything huge. But if you start by building up self-esteem, things that I am good at, you can then start homing in on the things that are actually causing the problem and working on them to underpin the rising self-esteem. If you begin to value yourself more, then everything will be better and you'll be looking at through rose-coloured spectacles rather than doom and gloom all the time. Fantastic. And for those people who have been listening to you and want to hear more about, you know, you know, learn more from you, do you have you know, publications, books, blogs, where, where could they find stuff that you've done? Uh, the, the couple, a few books on Amazon uh, that I've written. I've written uh, a series of booklets, okay. really. So you have 25 booklets on supporting students with dyslexia at secondary school. One set for 
Scotland and a parallel set for England and Wales because the the educational systems are different in, in the, the separate countries, uh, as are the exam systems. Uh, and there's a set of 11 uh, people can can you find them on they're on Amazon uh, and uh, people can a find that on Amazon. Uh, similarly titled, uh, okay. one is supporting gifted and talented students at secondary school, uh, and the other one uh, that's published by Sage, and another one supporting dyslexia in the secondary curriculum. I think it's called. Uh, it was uh, can't remember who published that Rutledge, I think perhaps, but they're all on Amazon. Okay. Great. We will put them into the show notes if you're listening and um, you can click on the link and, you know, go find out more. Have you got any uh, blogs or any other kind of online stuff that people can? Not really. I had some stuff on uh, CPD Bytes, but that's closed down. Okay. Were you not quite heavily involved in the Dyslexia Toolkit, the Scot Scottish? No, not particularly. I well? kind of wrote the the paper that stimulated its development, but that was contracted out to a university lecturer. Ah. And then it, then it became more of a contributor. There have been some references to some of my stuff on the, on the toolkit. That's it, Moira, you have been brilliant. I have, I've just, you're just a treasure trove of uh, knowledge and wisdom. I really appreciate you sharing with everyone here. Thank you for being here, Moira. You're welcome. This podcast is sponsored by DyslexiaProductivityCoaching.com. It's my day job when I'm not hosting this podcast. Tell me, do you know what you want to achieve in the workplace, but you're struggling with how to achieve it? Maybe you suspect some traits of dyslexia are getting in the way. Well, that's where Dyslexia Productivity Coaching comes in, because... We give you a simple productivity system for your Apple devices that harnesses the creativity that comes with your dyslexia. It includes proven methods like note-taking, reminders, speech-to-text, mind mapping, and more, all tailored to your needs. It'll free up your time and help you achieve outstanding results. Book a complimentary call to discuss it with me, and if you do it soon, I may also be available to coach you personally via Zoom. So don't be shy. Go to dyslexiaproductivitycoaching.com or swipe up and book it now.